So if you, if you need a fully credentialed pastor, he's, he's available. Uh, there you go. So I don't know what your relationship was, or what your relationship is to that story that Doug just read, that particular passage of the Bible. For me, I have a complicated relationship um, with that particular passage of the Bible. It's a great passage. I love it. Uh, but it holds a particular place in my childhood because for us growing up, um, that, was our, that was our Christmas morning Bible reading. Um, and actually, I should state that more clearly. It's our, it was our Christmas morning before you get to open your presents <laughs> Bible reading. And so we would, the four of us kids would wake up on Christmas morning and we'd go and gather around the, uh, the tree. All the presents would be there. We could see our our stockings were like, you know, full. We're so excited. And we had this, this tradition, this value, this discipline of where my parents would get a Bible and we'd read, read this story. Um, and so these, these exact 14 verses. Um, and it's interesting, if you, if you study it, uh, these are actually the longest 14 verses in the Bible. Or at least they were on, on Christmas morning. <laughs> But it's a great story, and it's a story that's worth sitting in because there's actually, there's actually some really great stuff in it, and, and it's really helpful. And uh, wh- one of the interesting things when you study the Bible is that, um, is that sometimes the verses that, that seem like nothing's going on actually have the most going on. And that's true of this story. Let me show you what I mean. So, it, like, Luke starts out this story, and, oh, I'm ahead. Uh, and he says, at, at that time, the Roman emperor... Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Empire. You know, and then he says this thing about Quirinius and going to the ancestral towns. And if you're like me, you read this story and you're like, well, okay. Like, that, it's kind of, you know, that's the intro. That's boilerplate. Let's get on. Let's, uh, you know, let's get going with the, the main action of the story. Uh, this, this part is actually, there's, there's some really helpful stuff going on here, and if you miss it, you actually miss the full impact of the story. So it says, the Roman Emperor Augustus, or or Caesar Augustus, and what's happening in this story is actually deeply entwined with this historical figure of Caesar Augustus and his his policies and his uh, accomplishments. So Caesar Augustus uh, was the first emperor of the Roman Empire. He succeeded Julius Caesar, who was the last ruler of the Roman Republic, and then under Augustus, it became the Roman Empire. And uh, so he, by the time of, of, uh, of this story, he had been reigning for about 30 years. He reigned for, for 40 years in total. And one of his great uh, innovations as a statesman had to do with actually this census thing. Uh, One of his great innovations as a statesman was he introduced the beginnings of a modern taxation system. Before Caesar Augustus, the the way that the Roman Empire would tax people was uh, they would conquer a people group and they'd say, okay, you're now a province of Rome where you're under our rule. And then that that village or, or area um, would, would say, well, okay, I guess we've been conquered. Uh, and maybe once or twice a year, the Roman Empire would send in the troops to that area and say, remember, you're a Roman 
province now pay up. And they would, at spear point, force them to pay tribute. And this, this tribute, this, they would ask for cash, and, and it would be arbitrary. The, the soldiers could ask for any, you know, any amount of money that they wanted. Very traumatic for the people, right? Like, they're this conquered nation, and it just kind of rubs salt in the wound that once or twice a year, they've got this, these soldiers coming in and threatening them with spears, and, and sometimes the soldiers would ask them for more money than they had, or sometimes the people would, you know, feel the resentment, and they would resist a little bit, and sometimes violence would break out. It was not a very good system, and so what Augustus did was he said, no, we're going we're gonna to create uniform taxation. We're going to make a system. And the system was that there would be a census. They would count every person in a province. And then he set a quota for each province. And then that province would know how much they owed each year. And yes, the soldiers would come in, but it wouldn't be this like really hostile thing. It would be, do you have what you owe? Yes, we do. Here we go. That's what's going on in this in this first little verse. So we get introduced to Caesar Augustus and we get introduced to this really impressive, actually, uh, political thing that he was doing. It was kind of revolutionary at the time. Luke then goes on and and look, look what happens. It says, and because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Um, Now, this is Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 1, we already met Joseph. All Luke told us about Joseph was he was engaged to Mary, and he was a descendant of King David. Then Joseph leaves the scene. We come back in chapter 2, and he mentions Joseph. And immediately, he tells us again he was a descendant of King David. Okay, like he's really, he doesn't want us to forget he's a descendant of King David. Like, Joseph, did, did I mention Joseph is a descendant of King David? Like Luke, Luke repeats it. He wants us to know. It's a descendant of King David. He doesn't want us to miss that. Now that's going to matter because one of the important things that was going on for the Jews at this time was they believed that God was going to provide them a new king. They, they, call, they referred to this new king as the Messiah, which means the anointed one, okay? Uh, some, some Bible translations just translate Messiah as king. Um, they thought that God was going to provide them a new king because a thousand years before this story, Israel was doing awesome, okay? They, they had risen under King David, this great king, and then his son Solomon. They had risen up to be this great world power. They were successful. They were prosperous, But then a few generations later, the Assyrian Empire rolled in and crushed them. And then the Babylonian Empire. And then the Greek Empire. And now the Roman Empire. And so for 800 years, they've been living under foreign rule. They've been living as an oppressed people. And for 800 years, they'd they'd believed that God would provide a new king. And what what the the prophets and the rabbis were teaching was that this king would come from the line of David and that like David, he would be a wise and godly and successful leader. And like David, he would lead, uh, lead the Jewish nation into another golden era. So Luke says, in those days, Caesar Augustus 
decree to census, he introduces us to a king. And then he says, and Joseph, who was a descendant of King David, and it's like, it's like he's got a neon sign here around Jesus that says king. It's a massive clue to where the story is going. Luke is saying there's a king in town, and there's also a new king in town. So early on here in the Christmas story, uh, we kind of get this, two, this thing going on where two kings are introduced. We've, we've got Caesar Augustus, and we've got this new king who's going to be a descendant of King David. And, the, and what's going to happen in this story is the whole thing is going to be about how this new king is going to replace Caesar. Watch what happens. Well, let's, let's, uh, we need to talk a little bit more about Caesar Augustus to understand this. One of the ways that Caesar Augustus consolidated his power, made people, made people follow him, was uh, by, he, by fostering what's called an emperor cult. And that's exactly what it sounds like. He had his, uh, his subjects worship him as a divine being. And so um, we archaeologists have found... Uh, have found ancient stone inscriptions and papyrus writings. And in these ancient writings from that time, it's not uncommon to see Caesar Augustus referred to as a god or even as a son of God. We also know that Caesar Augustus, as part of this emperor cult, he made a big deal out of his own birthday. Uh, In fact, he decreed that that on his birthday every year, um, choirs would sing his praises in the temples of the Roman Empire. Archaeologists um, have um, found a piece of stone in western Turkey, the city of Priene, um, which dates back to the year uh, 9 CE. And this stone has a, a calendar an ancient calendar inscribed on it, and the ancient calendar has a preface. And the preface talks about how in the ancient, in the Roman Empire at that time, they had actually changed the way that the years were counted uh, based on the year that Caesar Augustus was born they rearranged their counting of the years in the calendar based on when their king was born. They rearranged the counting of the years in the calendar based on when their king was born. Interesting. So, they, so this calendar talks about that uh, ancient stone calendar. It's got an ins- inscription that talks about how they rearranged the calendar based on the year of Caesar Augustus' birth because Caesar Augustus is so important. And here's what it says about how important Caesar Augustus was. Here's part of what it says. It says, Providence has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue so that he might benefit mankind, humankind, uh, sending him as a savior both for us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. 
did you catch all the super Christian-y sounding language in that inscription? Did you catch that Augustus was referred to as a savior? Did you catch that his birth was referred to as good news? In Greek, it's euangelion, and we often translate that word as gospel. We, also, we know from other ancient inscriptions that, uh, that Caesar Augustus also loved to be referred to as Lord. His favorite designations for himself were Savior and Lord. So here we are, and Luke says we have this king, Caesar Augustus. And by the time Luke writes this, Caesar Augustus uh, is dead, and there's a new Caesar, Tiberius. Um, but his, Luke's readers would have remembered Caesar Augustus. They would have remembered that Augustus made the whole Roman Empire talk about his birth as good news, as gospel. They would have remembered that he insisted that everyone refer to him as Savior and Lord. They would have remembered that Caesar Augustus decreed that his birthday be celebrated by choirs in the sacred spaces of the Roman Empire. And Luke then introduces another character. A peasant baby. And this baby is the son of Joseph. And Joseph is a descendant of King David from the town of King David. And they head back to the town of King David. And this baby is born in the town of King David. Hint, hint. And watch what happens. Keep in mind the calendar inscription and watch what happens. Verse 8, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you what? Good news. That will bring great joy to all the people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. I've said it before, um, the gospel writers always had more material than they included in their, in their gospels. They, they, didn't, they clearly didn't write down everything that happened. So if they chose to include something, that means it mattered. And Luke is careful to include Jesus' birth being announced as good news, as gospel. He's careful to include Jesus receiving the titles of Savior and Lord. And he's careful to include Jesus' birth being celebrated by a choir singing his praises. And it's an angelic choir. Do you see what Luke is doing here? See, we've gotten used to these words. 
right? We're, like 2,000 years of, of separation has perhaps rendered these words a little bit tame and toothless. Uh, we, we hear these words, maybe we think of like Linus reciting them in Charlie Brown Christmas. We think this is all, you know, very sweet and, and nice, and, and it is in a sense, but make no mistake about what Luke is doing. He's, say, he's saying Jesus is the king who has come to supplant Caesar. In the first century Roman Empire, this kind of talk was dynamite. This kind of talk was politically charged. This kind of talk could get you killed. Luke says there's a new king in town, and while Caesar sits on his throne demanding that everyone worship him or else, this new king, this baby king lies helpless in a feeding trough, and the choirs of heaven spontaneously break out in praise for him. Now, all of that brings us to peace. Today is Peace, uh, peace Sunday in, in Advent. We're going to light the peace candle in a moment. That first Christmas, the angels proclaimed the birth of a new king who would supplant Caesar. And as they did so, what did they say? They proclaimed peace on earth. There's one more thing we need to learn about Caesar Augustus, and it's actually his most famous accomplishment. Let's look again at this calendar inscription. It says, Providence has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. That was written about 35 years into Caesar Augustus' reign. He reigned 40 years before he died. So here we are, 30, 35 years in, okay, still within Caesar Augustus' lifetime, and already he's congratulating himself and making sure everyone else congratulates him for his work in ending war. Because the truth is, he was really successful at that. In fact, historians today consider Augustus the originator of an era in history called Pax Romana. Okay, maybe you've heard of that. It's Latin for, for Roman peace. Pax Romana was a period of about 200 years where the Roman Empire uh, was, was um, quite stable, quite conflict-free, had really good, uh, good law and order. That started with Augustus. In fact, sometimes it's not called Pax Romana. Sometimes it's called Pax Augusta because he originated it. Here's the thing, though. There's a, there's a fancy word that, that scholars use to describe Pax Romana. And the fancy word is hegemonic peace. Hegemony is when a, a people group, a state, a nation, or an idea exerts complete and total dominance over others. And so hegemonic peace is peace that is achieved through 
dominance. The reason why, why Rome was peaceful is because they were so powerful that no one dared uh, to rise up in rebellion. This is the kind of peace that you achieve through concentrating massive power in the hands of the upper class. This is the kind of peace you achieve by having the biggest guns and bombs and tanks. You build a big machine, you tell everyone what their place is in that machine, and you make it very clear that if you step out of line, you will be crushed. This is peace, but it's peace at gunpoint. And is that really peace at all? So that first Christmas, the angels proclaimed a king who would supplant Caesar, and in doing so, uh, they proclaimed peace on earth. And that king who would supplant Caesar grew up, and he became a rabbi prophet sage. He would eventually be arrested on trumped-up charges. He would be brought before, uh, before Pilate, an official of the Roman Empire. Pilate would ask him, are you the king of the Jews? And he would respond, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If I were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is not of this world. Short hours before he said that, he would, uh, he would share a meal that would come to be called the Last Supper with his 12 closest followers. And he would say at that Last Supper, uh, he said this to them, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And short days before that statement at the Last Supper, there was a day that would come to be called Palm Sunday. And on that day, um, Jesus would ride into Jerusalem, and the people were waving palm branches, which were essentially uh, their, their national flag. And they were shouting nationalistic slogans. And they were essentially saying, this man is mighty. This man has the power to overthrow the Romans. And, and, and he has the power to, uh, to end Pax Romana and, and create our own peace through domination. They essentially said, get this man on a war horse. And Jesus rode into town on a donkey, which in that time, symbolically, was the opposite of a war horse. And as he pulled up to the city of Jerusalem, he said, Ah, oh, Jerusalem, how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. That first Christmas, the angels proclaimed the birth of a king who would supplant Caesar, and as they did so, they proclaimed peace on earth. And this new king would live and die preaching and practicing a peace that ran deeper than the shallow and temporary peace that Caesar Augustus was so proud of. Because here's the thing about peace through dominance. 
It, it's fine, except for a couple of things. Like, number one, it doesn't feel like peace at all to the people that you're dominating. And number two, eventually someone's going to come along who's stronger. And you'll find that what you thought was peace was really just an uneasy ceasefire. That first Christmas, the angels proclaimed the birth of a new king who would supplant Caesar. And, in, and as they did so, they proclaimed a peace that would supplant Caesar's peace. Now, for the first Christians, their earliest confessional statement was Jesus is Lord. And they said that in the midst of a Roman Empire whose motto was Caesar is Lord. For the earliest Christians, their confession of faith was everyone else follows King Caesar, but we follow King Jesus. For the earliest Christians, they were... Uh, they were in a world that was committed to the way of Caesar, committed to the brand of peace that Caesar could bring. And they said, no, we're committed to the way of Jesus. And we're committed to the peace of Christ, not the peace of Caesar. We live in a world where sometimes it seems like all we know how to do is draw our swords we live in a world where when things don't go my way, my first instinct often is to say, how can I force, some, force things to go my way? Or if I can't force things to go my way, how can I make someone pay? We live in a world that at best, uh, that often at best will reach what Caesar Augustus reached, an uneasy ceasefire achieved through force, often achieved, achieved by disenfranchising someone else. We live in a world where the best peace that we often achieve is peace at gunpoint. King Jesus calls us to a peace, he says, that is not of this world. So who is it for you? Who is it for you with whom you need to practice the way of peace? We in Canada have the great privilege of living generally violence-free lives. But for many of us, our way of being in the world is still, is still all guns and swords. For some of us, our way of being in the world is we still find ways to wound other people. Who is it for you this week? Is it a person? Is it a group of people? Is it a, re is it a relationship you need to reconcile? Is it someone you need to forgive? Is it someone you need to ask to forgive you? Is it a judgment you're holding against someone? Is it a grudge that you're bearing? Who is it for you this week with whom you need to live out the peace of King Jesus? In 1987, in Belfast, Ireland, um, there was, this was during the conflict in Ireland, and, and the Irish Republican Army uh, set off a bomb in, in a town west of Belfast. Eleven people died. 
63 were wounded. One of the wounded was Gordon Wilson, who was a cloth merchant and a devout Methodist. Um, he, was, he was buried under five feet of concrete and rubble together with his 20-year-old daughter, and she died while holding his hand under the rubble. He was eventually recovered, and, uh, and from his hospital bed, he made a statement. He said, I lost my daughter, but I bear no grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring Marie back. I shall pray every night that God will forgive them. Once he had recovered, uh, Gordon Wilson became a crusader for reconciliation. There, were, there was actually a lot of media attention around his statement from his hospital bed, and so there were Protestant extremists who had wanted to retaliate with a bombing of their own against the IRA, uh, but they decided that it would be politically unwise given all this attention around Gordon Wilson's statement. Eventually, he, he wrote a book about his daughter, and he became an outspoken advocate um, for peace. And his slogan that he used again and again was, love is the bottom line. At one point, he met in person with IRA officials, personally forgave them, and just asked them to lay down their arms. And he said, you've lost loved ones just like me. Surely enough blood has been spilled. Worship team, you can make your way up. We live in a world where often our way of being is all guns and swords. King Jesus came and called us to the way of peace. And so, as people who claim to follow Jesus, let's choose this week to pursue the kind of peace that Jesus pursued, a peace that is not of this world, a peace that, uh, a peace that is inexplicable within this world, a peace that doesn't fit in the categories of this world. So I'm going to light the peace candle, and then I'm going to pray over us. Jesus, Jesus said, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be 